So this is what we read in God's holy word at Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. And the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, as I mentioned this morning, Jesus of Bethlehem. Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus is uh, mentioned seven times in the birth narratives in the Gospels, five times in Matthew, mentions Bethlehem, twice in Luke, and after that, only one reference in the New Testament to Bethlehem, John chapter 7. Does not Scripture say, this is the crowds, does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And you know why they thought that and expected that from Micah that we looked at this morning. They were having this discussion about Jesus. Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one that we've been waiting for? But we know that Messiah is a descendant of David and must come from Bethlehem. Just two verses previously on hearing His words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? And so you see the struggle that they're having. They know their Bibles well enough to know that Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And boys and girls, you know that he did. You know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But many of these people didn't know that. They only knew that Jesus came from up north in Galilee. They said that because Jesus was known predominantly not as Jesus of Bethlehem, but Jesus of Nazareth. And Nazareth was a town in Galilee. Jesus of Nazareth. That was the much more common name and identifier of Jesus. Many people had a name similar to Jesus. Joshua uh, is basically the same name as Jesus. There were lots of names like that. Who are you talking about? Jesus of, not so much Jesus of Bethlehem. Jesus of Nazareth. The carpenter's son, Jesus of Nazareth. That's how he was known. That name, Jesus of Nazareth, 
may be familiar to you and maybe you don't even realize that it's familiar to you. Have you ever seen the letters? Often it's on a crucifix. On the top of a crucifix, you'll see four letters. I-N-R-I. Have you ever seen that? I-N-R-I. Do you know what that is? Do you know what that means? It's Latin. And you have to remember that in Latin, they didn't have J's. They used I's instead of J's. And so I-N-R-I could be like J-N-R-I for us, but it's in Latin, so it's I's. Jesus, Nazarenus, Rex, Eudorum. That's what the Latin is. I-N-R-I. Where does that come from? You'll know as soon as I tell you what that means in English. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. I-N-R-I, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Eudorum, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, how do we go from Jesus of Bethlehem this morning to Jesus of Nazareth this afternoon? How do we go from Bethlehem to Nazareth in the life of Jesus? Nazareth, that obscure town, a town in the southern part of Galilee, which was the northern part of Palestine, about three days' journey, took three days to get from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Nazareth, a town that is not mentioned in the Old Testament directly, explicitly, not mentioned even by the, the well-known uh, Jewish-Roman historian Josephus, never mentions Nazareth, very obscure place. And that's part of the significance of it, as we'll see. How does Jesus get connected with Nazareth? Well, if you listen to the scripture reading in Matthew uh, chapter 2 this afternoon, you know the story. Herod. You remember, boys and girls, was jealous of any other king. And he committed what was called the slaughter of the innocents. Those boys, two years old and under, killed in that area. Uh, But Joseph was warned warned in a dream to go. And he went, taking Mary and the child with him, uh, to seek refuge of all places in Egypt, That's a whole other story. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. But there he is in Egypt. And after Herod's death, Joseph, there with Mary and Jesus in Egypt, is informed by God to return to the land of Israel. Herod had died. And it seems that Joseph was intending to return to Bethlehem, perhaps, or at least some other part of Judea, rather than going back to Nazareth. You think about that for a moment, and maybe you can understand why. Considering the unique and easily misunderstood circumstances around the pregnancy of Mary. 
Now we'll just leave. We'll just leave there and live somewhere else. But how, however, now ruling in Judea, the southern part of Palestine, in the place of his father, Herod the Great, was another ruler, Archelaus, of whom it was said that he was even more cruel than Herod, more oppressive, a greater desire for luxury, a bigger ego. He was a very bad man, boys and girls. And so Matthew tells us that the family, being guided by God, moved instead back to Galilee to that town called Nazareth. And Nazareth, you see, when Archelaus, worse than Herod the Great, are in the picture, Nazareth would have been a place where the family would have had relative safety. It was it was an obscure place, located in a very withdrawn position in a self-contained upland valley. Nazareth sits about 1,600 feet above sea level, 400 feet in relief from the valley floor. It has its perch on a rather substantial cliff, And if you remember in Luke 2.49, the townspeople of Nazareth attempt to throw Jesus over. Remember that story. It was an interesting place from Nazareth perched up high on the hill. One was said to be able to have one of the finest views of Palestine. From his childhood home then in Nazareth, Jesus, as he grew in wisdom and stature, would have been able to look out across the valleys and and hills and contemplate the history of the kings and the land of Israel. He would have been able to see from Nazareth Mount Gilboa where Saul, the first king of Israel, fell in battle. To the west of Nazareth rose Mount Carmel, the place where Elijah had confronted Ahab, the priests of Baal. Looking south toward the pass of Megiddo, he would have considered the fall of King Josiah, the last good king in Israel. Nazareth was an interesting place to be raised. Isolated as it was, Nazareth was still uh, within easy reach, almost within sight, of what was then the great commercial highway of antiquity, Uh, the crossroads, as it were, of political and popular life. If you ever study the geography of the Bible, and that's a very helpful study. O. Palmer Robertson has a very helpful book, Understanding the Land of the Bible. And he goes through all these places and and geographical features that come out in the Bible. What do they mean? How do we understand them? It's a great thing to study and learn about. And he points out, as many others do, that Nazareth was on what was called the Great Land Bridge, which connected the continents of Europe and Asia and Africa. That's where God chose for his people to dwell, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And so whether you were going and coming in all these three great continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa, 
you came into contact with the people of God in Israel. And Nazareth, in the northern part especially, was right there at that intersection. The crossroads of world thought and commerce and many times conflict. Jesus, growing up in Nazareth, would have been well acquainted with Jewish pilgrims, Egyptian caravans, Greek entourages, and Roman legions. Would have seen it all. And this Nazareth then, by God's providential leading of the Holy Family to that place, was to be the home of Jesus, where he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man until he began his public ministry. And so, as Matthew writes, Matthew 2, verse 23, he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. If you're from Ottawa, you're an Ottawan. If you're from Nazareth, you're a Nazarene. Jesus of Nazareth. And as I mentioned, that is the real common popular name of Jesus in the Gospels. Not Jesus of Bethlehem, Jesus of Nazareth. And that name, Jesus of Nazareth, is of such great significance in the New Testament. We read of the use of that identifier of Jesus in connection with the most significant aspects of his life. It's used here in the account of his uh, early life. On occasions of healing or confrontations with the demons, we find Jesus referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. At his arrest, the soldiers come and they say they have come for Jesus of Nazareth. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus is being tried by the Jews, Peter is accused of being associated with Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember, I-N-R-I, the sign on the cross, identified him as Jesus of Nazareth. At the resurrection of Jesus, the angel refers to him as Jesus of Nazareth. Who, though crucified, is risen and no longer in the tomb. In Acts 22, verse 8, when Jesus reveals himself to Saul on the road to Damascus, the Lord identifies himself as Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom you are persecuting. And finally, the preaching of the apostles held forth as the object of faith, Jesus of Nazareth. Toward the end of Acts, Acts 24, 5, when Paul's appearing there at his one of his trials, his accusers say, for we have found this man, Paul, a real pest. The New American Standard Bible translates, a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world 
and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Christians weren't always called Christians. They first were called Christians in Antioch, Acts chapter 11. They were called followers of the way, but very often they were called the sect of the Nazarene because they followed Jesus of Nazareth. We have, maybe you've seen some of them in our day, the Church of the Nazarene. That's a rather recent uh, church identifier. It comes out of the Wesleyan Methodist roots, uh, probably predominantly the Church of the Nazarene, but uh, that's not a, just a, a brand new name for Christians that they came up with in the 20th century. Very early on, if you were a Christian, they would have called you one of those Nazarenes, the sect of... You follow that Jesus of Nazareth, don't you? And so you see the great significance at all these points in the life and ministry of Jesus with this identifier, Jesus of Nazareth. Indeed, as we read through the New Testament, Jesus would be called, as Matthew says, the Nazarene. And we remember that in biblical language, to be called something is often much more than just a mere name. Often it reveals character and identity and work. The most curious thing about it all, though, perhaps, about the life of Jesus being characterized as related to Nazareth in fulfillment of prophecy, as Matthew writes. You notice, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. He was born in Bethlehem. We went back to Micah 5, 2 this morning. But you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, from you shall come the ruler who is the origins of all. That's prophesied. You go, yep, that's where that prophecy is. The curious thing is that nowhere in the Old Testament do we explicitly find a prophecy that says Jesus will be called the Nazarene. In fact, as I mentioned, Nazareth as a city is completely unknown in the whole Old Testament. And so that's been puzzling to people. It obviously is not puzzling to the Holy Spirit. Uh, The angels long to look into it, perhaps. How much of it that Matthew understood? I would, the judgment of charity would say that he did understand what he was writing. But how are we to understand then this title, Jesus of Nazareth, in terms of Matthew saying it is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah? What should we learn about Jesus and his ministry from being known as Jesus the Nazarene? Some have suggested that this word Nazarene comes or is based on the Hebrew word Natsar, which means consecrated or separate. That Jesus was to be called a Nazarene because he was some sort of Nazarite. That's a familiar biblical word. The Nazarites and a Nazarite vow, you remember. But according to the information that we have about Nazarite vows in the Old Testament, it seems clear that Jesus was not a Nazarite, technically speaking. He was, however, we could say certainly set apart, consecrated 
from before the foundation of the world for his work as Messiah. Well, if that's not, then probably what is involved in Jesus the Nazarene, what should we learn from this name? What can we glean from the Old Testament that that fits, that's in line with what we know about Jesus being Jesus of Nazareth? Let me suggest four things about Jesus as the Messiah, which relate to his having been raised in Nazareth of Galilee. First lesson, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene speaks of what would be a constant and continuing opposition to his ministry. That's very clear. The very fact that he was raised in Nazareth is evidence of that. Herod was dead, who opposed him even as a a child in swaddling clothes. Herod was dead, but the opposition continued in Archelaus. This was the effective cause of his move to Nazareth to begin with. But in it all, we should see the greater battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And that battle is always in effect in this world. Many antichrists have entered the world and will continue to do so until God's time comes and the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in and Jesus will forever put an end to the opposition to himself as king. He must continue to reign until all his enemies are under his feet. But Jesus of Nazareth should remind us that Jesus was an opposed Messiah. There is a battle going on in his life and ministry. Secondly, that Jesus is called a Nazarene speaks to the appearance of his ministry and of himself. From a human perspective, the life and work of Christ was one of obscurity and reproach. Do you remember what Nathaniel asked? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus of Nazareth. That, that backwater town, can anything good come from there? As part of the humiliation of our Savior, even the place of his upbringing brought upon him that kind of contempt and derision. Jesus of Nazareth. You know, we say it, and because we're not from there, we're not at that time, we don't really get it, but probably people would say it almost with a little bit of disgust in their voice. Jesus of Nazareth. That's where Jesus was raised. And that's the way that so many people looked at him, disregarded him. Nazareth was a despised town, And so Christ was a despised man. And the reproach that he bore from the place of his upbringing is only a small picture of the reproach that he bore as the sin bearer, 
as he took the shame and humiliation and disgrace of our sin on himself. Because you remember what Isaiah says, there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We need to call that to mind when we think of Jesus of Nazareth. But third, Jesus being the Nazarene also seems to speak to the purpose of his ministry. Matthew's reference to the Old Testament scripture is to the prophets, plural. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. So perhaps not one particular prophet in one particular place. We don't seem to see that but rather to the prophets in general. To to all that the Old Testament says by way of prophecy about the work of Messiah comes together in him being the Nazarene. This word Nazarene then probably is a reflection of the, the general message of many of the prophets. The root word Nazareth interestingly, bears a very close relation to another Hebrew word which became one of the most significant messianic titles. Netzer. Nazarene, Netzer. They're very close. But Netzer translated is the branch. The branch. So it may be a play on words of that prophecy. Isaiah 4 Verse 2 speaks of the beautiful and glorious branch of Yahweh, the Messiah, Christ's divinity. And then in Isaiah 11, 1, prophecies about the shoot from the root of Jesse, his humanity and his royalty. Or a passage like Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch, of righteousness. And the king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his, day, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. The branch, Netzer, might be connected to Jesus the Nazarene. The Lord, our righteousness. And how will Judah be saved? Again, Isaiah 53, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The fruitful branch, Jesus Christ, the green tree, who only ever bore good fruit, is cut off and burned, as it were, on the cross as he suffers the wrath of God. It's the branch, the God-man redeemer who came to make atonement for his people. But there's one more thing. Lastly, Jesus' situation in Nazareth reveals God's intended purpose and extent of the ministry of Jesus. Our call to worship from Isaiah 49. It's too small a thing, the Father says to the Son. Too small a thing for you just to redeem Israel. You're going to be a light to the Gentiles. There are going to be people from every tribe and language and tongue that are going to be part of the church, the inheritance of the nations that I am going to give you. From the beginning, God positioned his people at the intersection of the nations, you remember, so that all the world might be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Ezekiel 5.5 5 says, Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. Nazareth there on the great land bridge, the way of the sea, as it was called in antiquity. Later in his ministry, Jesus established a home base in the even more cosmopolitan Capernaum. The people there resented and hated the first preaching of Jesus, the first message of salvation that Jesus preached, which included the message of God's grace to the Sidonian widow and the Syrian general Naaman. He did so to fulfill God's purpose for the salvation of all the nations of the earth. Listen, now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who have sat in darkness have seen a great light. And those upon uh, who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Jesus of Nazareth reminds us that God had a saving purpose, not just for ethnic Israel, but for all the nations of the earth. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, we read that Jesus gave that great commission to his disciples. Where? In Galilee of the Gentiles. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. There was a lot to think about when we thought of Jesus of Bethlehem. And there's so much that's connected with Jesus of Nazareth. It speaks of his mission, his destiny as Messiah. But what about us here so far away and so long afterward? How does Jesus of Nazareth connect to us? Acts 24.5, Christians are called the Nazarene sect. Christ was known as the Nazarene. Do you know what it means for you to be a Nazarene like Jesus? If you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to this group, the Nazarenes. 
What does that mean for you? What does it mean for you? Will you identify with this Jesus of Nazareth when you understand what Nazareth implies? I mentioned it already, but do you remember? While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. Have you been with Jesus, the Nazarene? Are you with him? Do you follow him? Are you willing to be known as a follower of the Nazarene? What would that mean? Think of what it meant for Jesus. The disciple is not above the master. Identifying with Jesus of Nazareth will mean opposition in your life. Christ, following Christ, offers no guarantee of health, wealth, or the absence of trouble. He may give you wealth. He blessed Abraham with great wealth. But there's no guarantee of that. And even with that, we know that for all Christians, we are told explicitly that the followers of Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone that wants to live a holy, faithful life will be persecuted. Are we prepared for that? We all naturally like the way of ease and peace. Unless we have some sort of pathological personality issue, we don't like opposition or conflict or fighting or trouble. We prefer the dove to the sword. But we follow Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus knew opposition and conflict and trouble from his birth. He ended up in Nazareth because of opposition. Jesus, of course, in his suffering, suffered in our place, first and foremost, but he also suffered as an example to us. The world hated him, and it does and will hate his people. To be a Nazarene in the world is to know and to expect to find contempt and reproach from the world. We're not used to that. We've been able to coast in the West for a long time on the biblical history and heritage that we have, but that's coming to an end. It it soon won't be the case as it has been that even if people say, well, I'm not a Christian, but go ahead and do your thing, that increasingly Christians, when we say what we believe and that we follow this book and we follow Jesus, the Nazarene, as Lord, will be seen to be the evil people, the haters, the bigots, the troublemakers, which is nothing new in the world. Paul, the ringleader of the sect of Nazarene, that pest, that pest, 
faith in Christ is not the way to gain respectability in the world. It's foolishness to the world. And if you believe it, you're a fool in the world's eyes. The message of the Nazarene and his cross is foolishness in the eyes of the world. And we have to be prepared and and be on guard against the fear of of man and, and reproach and contempt that might motivate us to compromise the message or or to not be quick to identify ourselves with Jesus of Nazareth. Because the day may come when people will come with their their finger in your face and say, Are you one of them? Do you follow Jesus? Are you one of those Nazarene? They might not use that language, but are you a Christian? What are you going to do? How, how wonderful that our salvation doesn't depend on that. Peter, Peter denied. And the Lord forgave him. We have to be prepared for that kind of identification and challenge with Jesus of Nazareth. Sometimes in some parts of the church, in the fear of man and the fear of reproach and contempt, Christ and the Bible, Christ is brought so low down to people's preferences, what people will accept that he couldn't be a stumbling stone for anyone anymore. We have to be careful that if we suffer, it's not as an evildoer. The Bible warns us against that. And to have no stumbling block because of our sin in people's lives, just because we're being nasty people or whatever it is. But there is a stumbling block. There is an offense of the gospel and of Christ in the world. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And if trouble and reproach are in store, why would anyone follow this Jesus of Nazareth? You know, why, why wouldn't you just rather have your respectability in the world and at the workplace? And why, why wouldn't you just compromise on it all so that your family, your, your natural family, can just be one big happy family and, and not have that gospel Christian thing dividing? Remember, Jesus said, I've come not to bring peace but a sword to divide mother against daughter and father against son and all these things. Well, why bother? Why not just have that then and give up the reproach and give up the, the cross and Christ? Why, why do you want to follow Jesus of Nazareth? Have you thought about that? It's not good enough just to say, well, I don't know, I'm just here. My parents have done it. I'm just here. I just come along because... They tell me to get in the car. Why do you follow Jesus of Nazareth when he is a despised Savior? Well, it's because he is a despised Savior. That's why, isn't it? Because he alone offers a treasure which far outweighs any momentary earthly trouble, a gift of righteousness that's able to satisfy the holiness of God and the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of his own life for his people. 
I-N-R-I, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's the way of the cross, the despised cross, and its foolishness to blind sinners. But for those whose hearts have been made new by the mercy of God, it is the way of life and beauty and blessedness. To be a Nazarene is to come to Jesus in complete faith and trust as your Savior and to come in repentance before your King. And lastly, we should thank God as we remember what Paul says in Ephesians, at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember, Jesus' saving purpose includes the salvation of the nations of the world, Galilee of the Gentiles. And for most of us, that's us. We are not Jews according to the flesh. But Jesus is the Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilee of the Gentiles, so that the light has shined on the nations of the world, and that's us. That's what we should remember when we think of Jesus of Nazareth. His grace has come to me, a Canadian. Isn't that amazing? Canadian wasn't even a a word in the first century. But here we are saved. Here we are forgiven through faith in Jesus of Nazareth. And as Jesus lived there and was raised among the nations in the Galilee in Galilee of the Gentiles, so too he has placed us here in the midst of many people, many different kinds of people, all different kinds of people, so many of whom are lost in their sin, many have never heard the true message of Jesus Christ. He's placed us at the intersection of the world. I know there are so many people that have questions and problems and issues with immigration. Some of them are warranted. Some of them aren't. But here's what we can't deny. God's bringing the nations here. I don't, I don't need to go to Iran to meet Iranians. They'll come to your house if you sign up for friends for dinner. Galilee of the Gentiles can come right to your dining room table. And by God's grace, the light of Jesus of Nazareth can shine on them too. He went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. 